a warning. This episode of Residence contains coarse language, some sexual and drug references, and themes of mental illness. Listener discretion is advised. Hi there, whoever's listening. Welcome back to the Residence Podcast. So for anyone who got through season one and was actually wanting more, I do apologize it's taken this long to get the last couple of episodes out there, but this one is worth the wait. It's a three-part story, and it simply wasn't possible to make it any shorter and do it justice. It'll span across three episodes, and when you listen to it, you'll see why. And I promise you, you won't be bored for a second. Tim and I met at work about a year ago. One of the first things we bonded over was our mutual love of the Swedish language. His interest runs a little deeper than mine, though as does his actual aptitude for the language. So, hur är läget? Jo, det är bra, Adrian. Uh, läget är fint. Hur är det själv? A quick translation. I just asked him how he's going, and he responded with, just fine, thanks. And yourself? Jag vet att min svenska är inte så bra som som dinas. Var det rätt, vad jag sa? I know my Swedish isn't as good as yours, Upon editing this episode, I'm pretty convinced that I said that incorrectly anyway. Oh, precis. Oh, okay, cool. Not Scarvi, um, Börja... Börja våran podcast. Oh, precis. Oh. All I really said then was, let's get the podcast started. It's funny, so you can use, um, you just put on a Swedish accent for English words, like, podcast, <laughs> or the weather, how is the weather today? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. <laughs> okay. Shall we begin? Jo, absolut. Okay. Having lived abroad several times, I'm endlessly fascinated by stories of people packing their bags and heading off in search of a place to call home, even if it's for a short time. Yeah, meeting the Dutch girl in the Philippines was a real pivotal experience that influenced where I would go next. I still had India on my mind and I was counting the other days to go there. Anyone who's ever relocated to another country is familiar with the range of emotions that can come with it. From anticipation, excitement and fun to disappointment, stress, heartache and sometimes even trauma. But over time, the the hash, I think, started getting to me. I was like looking seven or eight steps ahead and I was thinking, fuck, what can be the ultimate outcome? from this and, and I just saw violence like my, my mind is going straight down and it freaked me the fuck out this podcast explores the question what is home is it just a place of residence or something more than that welcome to the residence podcast No, I drank one on the way. Thank you. Oh, yeah. No worries, man. Good. How's the drive? Um, nice, nice place. It smells nice in here. Thank you. Um, yeah, make yourself at home. I'll take my shoes off. No worries. Yeah, how's your morning been? Um, really chill. Yeah? I had um, some poached eggs on, on like sourdough bread in the morning. Yeah. So good. Good stuff, man. So, yeah, just chilling out. 
It was a rainy Saturday afternoon when Tim invited me to his spacious Victorian cottage in the leafy suburb of Paran to do our interview. He lives a quiet, easy life. But if there's anything doing this podcast has taught me, it's that you just never know. You have zero idea what people are about, what they fear or what they've been through, until you really take the time to hear their story. What first struck me when I met Tim around a year ago is how mellow he was. Some people just have that ability to instantly put you at ease, to level you out. And he's one of those people, which is what makes his story and everything he experienced abroad all the more interesting. Hey, uh, my girlfriend's yeah. here, by the way. Oh, okay, so cool. Cool, cool. This is so okay, no worries. Yeah, awesome. This is Adrian. Hi, Hi how are you? Nice, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. What's your name? He rents this place with his girlfriend, Laura, who is a professional actress. All right, thanks for, thanks for having me over. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. yeah, I'll get out of your way. I'll be outside. No, that's okay. Yeah, that's who you're recording. We laugh about a poster of Buddha hanging in the kitchen. Yeah. I got you, go. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I got that from my, um, from my last place. I was like, I need some posters. And I just saw that one online. I'm like, Are you bored online, did you? Yeah. Yeah, so I was like, I made some posters to add some characters to the yeah. house I was living at. And this one was, um, it was perfect. But I wanted to put it like in the toilet. So you just like, whenever you go, so I let that shit go. It's like, bring it. <laughs> <I don't laughs> Before getting together to do this recording, Tim and I met up to get to know each other a bit better. He told me not only his story, which we'll get into in a minute, but about his interests, his passions, his plans, and his dreams of everything that led up to us meeting on that sunny afternoon in Paran, Melbourne. We talk of him moving to Australia from Scandinavia as a young child, of the time he visited relatives after graduating high school. We talk of his job at a theme park in Sweden, of a solo trip around Europe to an adventure in the Philippines and back home to start a university degree. All this, however, led to what ultimately made him who he is today, what taught him gratitude and gave him peace of mind, what dragged him to hell and almost never back again. Everything we talk about was leading to one thing, to India. When we first caught up, Tim shared with me something he heard Jordan Peterson say about the Taoists. The Taoists believe that a meaningful life is to be found on the border between chaos and order. And then I wondered, is this something Tim lives by? As you'll see, Tim has experienced his fair share of extremes without a whole lot in between, which I can kind of relate to. Maybe not in exactly the same way, or to the same extent, but it's certainly not a foreign concept to a lot of people. Why do we always operate this way? What is it about middle ground that we fear so much? Maybe it's the fear that if you aren't one thing or the other, that you're nothing or no one. You doing something or taking action is you taking control. And the more extreme your thoughts or your actions, the more control you feel you're taking. 
Tim was born in Sweden in 1992 to a Swedish mum and an Australian dad. He moved here when he was six weeks old, but until the age of seven would move back and forth between the two countries before finally settling in Australia, Byron Bay to be exact, where his dad would build a house. He would still visit Sweden every three or four years though, for several months at a time. And he reflects fondly on this and talks of how it shaped him into the person he is today. Yeah, it was really interesting growing up in, in both cultures. In Sweden, I really had my, my whole, all of my mum's family um, lived in the same town. So it was a real sense of community and everyone lived really, really close with each other. So I just have memories as a young kid just being surrounded by um, just like both my grandparents and all my cousins and all my friends like lived in the same, same neighbourhood. Um, so we'd always be, be out yeah, playing and having fun. And then coming back to Australia, my, uh, my dad moved from Melbourne originally, so I didn't have as much family in Byron Bay. So it was kind of two totally different experiences. Um, also growing up, I think moving about so often when I was um, a kid meant that I didn't really have a strong sense of, of what home was. Because I had, you know, yeah, two, I guess, two different bases. So it was almost like I'd get live in Sweden and have such a good, great time with all my friends and family and, and feel really safe there. And then I'd come back to Byron and I'd kind of miss, miss those experiences and miss my friends and, and stuff like that. I think the other, I guess the other interesting thing growing up is just a, um, the idea of tradition. So in Sweden, we would set, had all these different yeah, celebrations and then Christmas was a real time of, of gathering. And so we'd have all of our friends and family come to my, uh, my mum's parents or my grandparents' place and we'd have these massive feasts. And it'd be cold as well, it was like snowing during that time. And then coming back to Australia or having a, having a Christmas in Australia would be like a barbecue with my mum and dad and my, my two siblings. Tim talks about how he was feeling when he first moved from Sweden to Byron permanently. The fears and insecurities he had and how they started to mould him into the person he would become in later years. Moving, uh, it was interesting because everyone um, pictures Byron as this like paradise and, you know, it's right next to the beach um, and it's just kind of heaven on earth. Um, but my experience was quite different. I think I, I had friends in Byron, like some good friends, but I still felt quite isolated and everything was spaced out a bit more. And I didn't feel as comfortable or like accepted or as confident to be myself, I think, growing up in Byron. Whereas in Sweden, it was like such a, a small community. All my friends lived in the same neighborhood. And I just remember us playing outside, you know, for countless hours playing games. And even um, I think being valued uh, by, by women at that age. I remember I was like, I think eight or nine in Sweden and I had a girlfriend. And then coming back to Australia where I was kind of like seen as the bottom of the barrel like I wasn't as valid and I kind of had this weird conflict in my mind of like why aren't my why am I getting because I've got like why am I being teased or bullied in Australia versus very valued in Sweden I could totally be myself versus in Australia I just remember like having to be just being scared a lot of the time I didn't feel that comfortable going to school in Byron I felt like it was quite separate and I was quite emotional as a kid as well whether that's a product of, of the schooling system or not. But, but also I think maybe related to my, because um, my, I was very close with my mum growing up and, and she didn't feel that comfortable in Australia either. It was challenging for her, obviously, because um, all of her family is in Sweden. 
obviously she loved my dad. I don't know, she never totally felt comfortable. It was a lang like a language barrack, like culturally. She never felt totally connected with a place. And so I spent a lot of time with my mum, like the first two years before my sister was born, my dad was working. And so I think she had a strong impact on me growing up. And so, I don't know, maybe um, her being so comfortable in Sweden and me sharing a lot of similar qualities with her kind of had that effect on me versus in Australia, we were kind of both isolated in a way and didn't feel totally comfortable. Potentially shaped by his earlier life experiences, Tim was extremely anxious when he began attending Byron Bay High School and was, by his own admission, a perfectionist, or a goody-two-shoes as he puts it. This may have even been the beginning of Tim exhibiting extreme behaviours, of trying to prove something to himself, of trying to make his mark and find out what he's really made of. It was, it was tough. I, like, I don't look back at high school with much funness. I think make myself feel safer just by the playing piano or by studying or just getting good grades. I, like, I studied just to cope, I think, um, and I developed throughout high school I had, um, like I said, just a perfectionist attitude and it kind of, I had such high expectations for myself, but I think my teachers as well had high expectations on me to succeed. I didn't have any balance at all. I was like, I'd come home and I'd just pretty much lock myself in my room and just study for like five or six hours and then play some piano and then study. Um, I didn't have much of a social life. I was very um, awkward in social situations. I think because I didn't, I didn't feel like I'd have much to bring to the table. I think my sense of who I was, or my, I was validated by my achievements. So when I would receive a good result in like a mass class or a mass test, yeah, I, I didn't feel overly excited, but I was like, yep, yeah, this is what I need to do. But on the other side, if I failed a class, that was like the world turned over. I remember having like, I failed a mass test when I hadn't failed anything before. Um, and I was at home crying. It's like, what? You know, I was so wrapped, like my results were so wrapped up in my identity and I felt pressure to get good results so I could please the teacher. Yeah, I had some, some good friendships with males, but just not with the opposite sex at all through high school. Yeah, it just devalued myself and I felt like I couldn't attract girls in Byron, in Byron Bayer in Australia. Um, what, were they, what were girls more interested in versus in Sweden in Byron Bay? Yeah, good question. I, I think it was more um, appearance-driven because I feel like my, my friends who were good-looking, um, I don't know, there was maybe a correlation between their confidence level and the way they looked, and that was um, appealing to girls versus in, in Sweden where I was just like, I, I don't know, I felt this is like it's easy. Uh, although the relationship between guys and girls is a lot simpler. Like there were, I think there were girls that liked me at high school, but I just wasn't interested in them. Mm -hmm. um, but the girls that I liked, I felt like were very out of my like reach or out of my league, I guess. And I remember there was a turning point, I think when I was like 14 or 15, and I started getting a really bad acne. From the ages of like 14 to I would say 18, my perception of the world was through the lens of people looking at my acne. So I was super insecure. Yeah, it would just shape. I remember even like putting on foundation and stuff to like cover it up. You know, I had, I had red hair, I had braces, acne. It was just like all this stuff. And I was very, I guess like most teenagers are, just very insecure um, with my own body. 
I remember um, there was a moment in high school actually where I was just like, I just looked in the mirror. Uh, I'm at myself, I'm like, fuck, who could like this person? Just did not value myself at all. The opposite sex and stuff felt so removed. I think that was a result of my acne as well. After graduating high school with impressive marks, his whole future ahead of him, the only thing Tim felt was a sense of self-loathing, of helplessness, a feeling that it had all been for nothing. But I didn't feel um, a sense of achievement. I was like, I wasn't even that happy. What did you feel? Um, I was like, relief. I think that it was over. Like all the high school, like all the studies and the exams, because it was so up in myself in so many pressure-filled situations. When I graduated, most of my friends went to Bali for schoolies, um, but I decided not to do that. And then my dad was like, Tim, you need to get a job. And so I was lucky that he had a connection with um, one of the local pizza restaurants. I had no idea how to clean up. Um, I had no idea you know, like how to sweep the floor let alone make the pizzas or do the dishes or any of that stuff. But I think starting at the pizza restaurant was definitely a life-changing moment because I, I developed social skills and banter and life skills, like I said, cleaning up um, and a routine. And, and finally, I was getting um, you know, money as well. I was you know, able to save for something. I think during that time, I was, I was thinking as well, I'd, like most of my friends... Um, and I think even family were expecting me to go straight to university after I finished high school because I got such great results. But for me, it was just like the opposite thing. I, I couldn't even fathom like going back to studies for a long, long time. It was like, I, I just wanted to, I, I knew that I needed a change. Um, I needed to do something radical to change the direction of my life. And so after I worked at the pizza restaurant, I had enough money to then um, to travel overseas and actually went to Sweden. One of the reasons why I wanted to go to Sweden is because I had that nostalgia from childhood and I wanted to reconnect with that because it was a place that I felt happy. Yeah, I got a job at, at, at this like adventure theme park type place. It was, um, yeah, just, just outside of Volta Bay in a place called um, Tvorked, um, called Fun, it was Fun, Fun City. Um, it's now an abandoned kind of a graveyard um but at the time it was it was pumping so i was working at like the mexican buffet doing like the cotton candy hot dogs chips and stuff like that and that was like a, a result of having a job at the pizza restaurant because i could say i had hospo experience yeah that first few months it was like regaining the language and having to learn swedish again to a competent level and actually yeah working at the theme park is when i um met my first girlfriend um and it was funny how we met because um, I was still at this this point where I just didn't think that girls could like me. And so she was like the check-in person. So when I went start the theme park, I'd like check in with my ID and she'd scan it. And then we would just have these conversations. And then one morning she's like, hey, um, can I have your phone number? And I was just like so shocked. I was like, what? What is this? Someone, like a girl was asking for my phone number. I was <laughs> so surprised. Yeah, at the time I was just like impressed by her courage because I, I could never do something like that, like ask for someone's phone number. Um, so then, yeah, I just remember like B, I was working in the hot dog place, just messaging her like during shift, finding more out about her. Yeah, it was the first time where I felt like validated by the opposite sex. 
Um, and so we um, we just we hung out a few times, and then we're like, let's you know take it to the next level. Um, I was lucky that she had her own apartment in Valbay, so I'd go there, um, and I actually lost lost my virginity. And actually, this is the first time I kissed a girl as well with her. Um, At the same time, so first time you lost. No, no, sorry. The, the, yeah, the kiss came first. Um, the kiss came first. And that was, yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, and then a week after, I went to her apartment. And that was even cooler. That was even cooler. That was <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was thinking about that from the time that I kissed her to that moment. I was, that's all that was running in my head. It was like, what would that look like? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the theme park season ended and that's when I made the decision to travel on my own. Yeah, I started in Copenhagen. It was actually my first place. So I got a train from Vauder Bay down to Copenhagen with my backpack, uh, not having any idea what I was getting myself into. And so I'd kind of, yeah, finish the theme park and then I was going to meet up with the Swedish girlfriend a bit later on. But that decision to travel on my own, I think, went against everyone that I knew's expectations. I remember just like telling my mum and my dad that I was going to travel on my own. And they're like, no, there's no, no way, no way you're going to do that. But I just felt intuitively that I needed to do it to break the mould of, of who I was. I, I needed to take that plunge. It's like a sky, a skydive almost. And it was, it was really tough. Like it was the first few weeks traveling solo were really hard. I remember um, getting to Copenhagen and just having my backpack and just walking around the city with these next to people in suits and just being so self-conscious with my backpack. Just feeling like a fish out of water. It's like, oh, everyone's, everyone's looking at me. And then going to a hostel and like, sleeping in the same room as like 12 other people in bunks and like having to have conversations and chats with just strangers. It was like so weird when I first started and I'm like, what do I talk about? What do I, you know, what do I do in this situation? But I gradually like over time and, and traveling more through, you know, went to Denmark and then Amsterdam and down to Paris and then met the Swedish girlfriend in Berlin, went to, to Budapest a bit later on. I think um, the longer I traveled, the more confidence, confidence I, I grew. And, and I think I became better at having conversations with people and I just became, went from being in this bubble to understanding that there's so many different walks of life. I met people from all over the world with all different professions and different life experiences. Tim was having the time of his life and pushing himself in ways he never had before. But a change was around the corner and it would be one that he didn't expect but would ultimately propel him on the first step of an entirely new journey. Like I said, I'd met this Swedish girl at the theme park and then um, decided to go traveling solo. And then a couple of months later, we met in Budapest. And in Budapest, it just kind of, it fell through the cracks. We just didn't, it was just a horrible time. And we realized that we had different priorities in life. And I think I was just like excited because it was a, I had a girlfriend and I felt valued from that rather than really connecting with this person. And I'm really, really grateful that she, it was so shit at the time, but she actually broke up with me um, in Budapest on the last morning together. And it just kind of ruined the rest of my Euro trip. But in hindsight, it, I'm so grateful because it really, whilst at the time I was like, I'm never gonna get another girlfriend. Like I'm never gonna be valued. This is my, my one shot and I fucked it up. But what ended up happening is the next year I went, you know, went back to Byron, worked at the pizza restaurant to get more money. 
and then went straight back to Europe because I was like so addicted to travel, had the travel bugs really hardcore at this point. And that second Euro trip in 2012, that's when I really kind of, my, my wings came out. Um, and I just, it was probably the, one of the three best months in my life. So I just, I flew into um, like Barcelona and started in Spain. And I was just so confident as a person. Um, and I met a lot of travelers. I think that's where I really built like curiosity in people. And I almost became obsessed with like asking interesting questions to discover things about other people. Um, and I really grew stronger relationships with the other sex as well. I really kind of came into my own. And so, yeah, I traveled around Europe then for another three months to you know, Spain, Portugal, and then the Greek islands. And I had a lot of crazy, crazy um, trips there, particularly with the opposite sex. So that's really where throughout that trip, I had so many, I guess, sexual experiences and really came into my sexual self. And then after that trip, I went back, returned to Sweden with the intentions of studying in Sweden. Because at that point, I thought to myself that, um, you know, I want, I want to live in Sweden and I'm a Swedish citizen, so I'll be able to get free education. So, I, so my plan was to study adult education so I could get the right prerequisites to start university. So I started my studies. I was I was living with my grandma in, in Vorbe and my granddad had just passed away. And then it started getting, it was like more towards the winter, whereas previously it was in the summer. And so it started getting cold and like dark at, you know, 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And most of my friends weren't in, in Vorbe anymore. So I started getting pretty lonely. And I was like, oh fuck, not enjoying this at all. And so at the end of that year, 2012, I actually made the decision to travel back to Australia. I guess my first intention was like, oh, I've got a job in Byron Bay at the pizza restaurant. You know, I'll go back and get some more money and then go back over. But what I realized coming back to Byron Bay was um, I was just questioning whether or not I wanted to live in Sweden. And I thought, is this the right? I was like, almost had a quarter life crisis. I was like, do I really, is, is it the money that's important? Like I can have free education and I had a great childhood here, but it's a very different time. Um, and I actually made the decision instead to move to Melbourne. So I moved to Melbourne um, with the hopes of studying uni. So I'd applied for, for Melbourne Uni, um, doing a Bachelor of Arts degree. And, and then for the next three or four years, I kind of went through this routine of like, you know, start, starting a course, then dropping out and starting and then traveling and working back at the pizza restaurant. But I think every decision that I made was kind of like leading towards a direction, at least study-wise, but I think with, with women as well. And so whilst I started with like this arts degree, I did a, a subject in that arts degree, which was like learning and knowledge. So I really grew a passion for education. And part of that subject involved, um, you know, working at homework clubs for kids from migrant and refugee backgrounds. And so I was like, cool, this is something that, that I really want to do. And so I ended up doing it. I dro dropped out of arts and started science and then dropped out of that. And then did a certificate for in TESOL. But even after doing that, I was still like, I'd grown up playing classical piano, as I mentioned before. So I was kind of at this like fork in life where I was like, do I pursue my passion for piano or do I go down the education route? Because I've had such good experiences with education as well. And so I decided to do, yeah, classical piano. And I was fortunate enough to pass the audition and, and then start that. But I quickly realized that it just wasn't, 
where I wanted to go with my life. I wasn't obsessed with playing piano and I wasn't willing to go through the five or six hours of practice to, to, to do that. And so the year after that, um, 2016, is when I decided to start my Bachelor of Education. Living in Melbourne and studying, I still had this passion for travelling. Like I was always excited at the end of the year to work at the pizza restaurant and then use that money to go on these trips overseas. And so like some, one year I went to Cambodia, another year I went to, um, I think I went to Cambodia twice, but like Thailand with a friend. And then I went to the Philippines and I feel like the Philippines was my favorite country to travel to for many reasons. I, I got there um, and the beaches were absolutely beautiful, um, even better than Thailand. The people were so lovely. Um, and I just, I loved the karaoke. Like I love how friendly and happy the people in the Philippines were. I think each trip you like, you meet people that kind of that change that you really connect with and change the direction of your life. And one of those people was a Dutch girl that I met in, um, in Cebu in the Philippines. I flew, it was just like flew into a domestic airport and I was waiting in line for the taxi. And I'd seen her before, I was like, oh, she looks kind of cool. Like backpack looked like a real hardcore backpacker. And so I was waiting in line for a taxi and then she just comes up to me and she's like, oh, hey, like, do you want to share a taxi? Um, I think it'll be cheaper if we, you know, both go into the same one. And one of the first things she said was like, look, I've got no, I haven't booked a hostel. I don't know where I'm going. I'm very easy. Like, do you have somewhere that we're staying? And I'd booked a hostel and I was like, yeah, 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 come, come join me. Like, feel free to go to the same hostel. And that's kind of like the story of her traveling. Like she was, she was just so spontaneous with what she did. She started traveling because she was just sick of her job in the Netherlands. And she said that she looked at this world map and just like put a finger in the middle and it ended up being Kenya in Africa. And it was like, she just booked a one-way ticket like that week to Africa. And she just had these crazy stories of, you know, I think she got um, malaria and was like hallucinating in Africa and would like just walk into the desert with like four or five liters of water and would just like stumble upon these tribes. And her, her um, definition of traveling was just to like immerse in the local culture and just to meet the real people of that country. And so that had a really strong impact on my approach to traveling. And so, yeah, we stayed at this hostel for one night and then she's like, let's go to this place, let's go to this island. And so we got like a local bus there and even the local bus was such, such a um, like intense immersive experience i remember being there like sitting next to her with my backpack um and the bus was like had no windows there was like the person next to me had some chickens there was like a, a farmer there was a woman with a baby crying it was like packed like sardines and i just had this um facial expression of like awe i was just looking around it's like holy shit all the smells and the sights and the sounds. I was so immersed in this local, like we were totally locals and we didn't have, we didn't really know, we didn't have a place we were gonna stay. And she said to me as well, it's like, I'm, I'm never really concerned about having a roof of my head because I know that if worse comes to worse, I can just pull up on the side of the street and just like sleep, sleep in a forest or sleep next to the tree, next to a tree. But she, yeah, just talking with her as well, she told me about her, she traveled to India for like two or three months. And a lot of people had mentioned India as, an, as a name, but, but her experience was, was again, this like 
total immersion and, and chaos of people, colours, food, just a, a richness of experiences. I don't know, just having that like that local experience in the bus and then even after that, um, I mean, went like I went hitchhiking for the first time with her. Like we put our thumbs up and just went into the back of a pickup truck. Like those experiences made me realise the type of travelling that I wanted to do. Like I, I really felt alive doing that. And, and it sounded like India was the place where I could do that more often, that I could really jump in and get immersed into the local culture and, you know, not have any plans. Just get there and kind of your plans are made from the people that you talk with, people that you speak with and the places that you hear. And so I feel like, yeah, meeting the Dutch girl in the Philippines was a real pivotal experience that influenced where I would go next. So I remember, yeah, I went on that trip in the Philippines for a few weeks, um, like end of 2015, start of 2016, um, and then I started my education degree. But that whole year was me like thinking of India. Even, yeah, I remember that, that year I like travelled to Uluru and I had a French girlfriend at the time and, and did that travelling and but I then tried to like replicate the Philippines but I just couldn't get there. And even though it was awesome, like travelling around the Red Centre and going up to Darwin and really experiencing, um, you know, the real Australia, I still had India on my mind and I was counting the other days to go there. And so, yeah, at the end of that year, it was like November 25th, yeah, 25th of November 2016, I bought a one-way ticket to India, um, to Kochi on the, on the west side in Kerala, west side of India. And I had booked accommodation for one night, but I had no other plans. Like, that's all that I knew was like the hostel and the place. I was like, I'll just make, I'll get there and then I'll, you know, live day to day and see what happens. Um, and so I did that. And when I arrived, I realized that um, India was like, they were in a process of getting rid of their currency. So they were getting rid of like all the 500 and 1000 notes. And so as a result, everyone was like lining up at the ATMs so they could get the correct currency. So I remember like arriving at the airport and not knowing where I was going to get like Indian currency. I was like, how am I, how the fuck am I going to like pay for shit when I can't even go to an ATM? Because all the ATMs had run out of money because we were lining up. And so it was a struggle to even get money. And I was like, yeah, this is, this, I've arrived. I've arrived to India. Eventually ended up at an ATM, was able to get money, a little bit of money, and got a bus to the hostel where I stayed a night. And then that morning, I was just sitting having breakfast. And this Indian guy who was staying at the hostel just came to me and he said that he was a couch surfer and that he liked, he loved like meeting backpackers and just taking people out on trips to see like authentic India and to go to remote and rural areas. So I just thought having this breakfast, I was like, yep, sign me up. This is like, this is perfect. It just aligns like exactly what I want. So I ended up, he ended up renting a car um, and we met two other backpackers. There was a French guy and an Austrian guy who were all like keen to do the same thing. And we actually left like super early in the morning because there were lots of protests happening around India. So he kind of wanted to avoid the crowd. Um, and so he left, yeah, 2 or 3 a.m., like in complete darkness. And we were driving into, you know, a, a forest, like, a, like out in the, I guess, the bush slash forest of India. And the first, this is like, yeah, the third or fourth day that I'm in India. And we're driving into the forest and all of a sudden we hear this like bang. And the car, like the tire of the car punctured. 
And so we were just like stuck in the middle of nowhere. Didn't have any contact at like 4 a.m. in the middle of India. And I was like, what the fuck? Like straight, straight up. So we were there. It was in a pretty dangerous area. It was like really curvy road as well. And so cars are coming by and like beeping. And we had to kind of make sure we had lights so they could see us. And eventually like this rickshaw driver came by and he was kind enough to stop. And we're like, can you please help us? We need, like, we need to get our car towed because we didn't know where the next place was. So this rickshaw driver was like, yeah, no problems. I'll go to the next town and then get a, a pickup truck. Um, and so he went and got yeah, a pickup, pickup truck, came and got us. And I just remember being like in the car while the pickup truck was driving. And then my two friends were like sitting in the pickup truck and I was in the car. And I was like, yeah, what a first. What if I hadn't slept at all? got the car tire punctured um got no idea what i'm getting myself into i don't know where i'm going i'm just kind of going with the going with the flow um and that really set the tone of like you know india for me i was like straight away i'm getting into it and that that mini trip at the start was really cool like i yeah met the austrian guy and he was a he was a lawyer um but he was very alternative and he he told me about this thing called the rainbow gathering And then um, I knew coming into India that I had a couple of things that I wanted to do. And one of those was to stay at an ashram or like a spiritual healing place. And so after that mini trip, I stayed at an ashram um, and I met this English guy called Jake. And Jake and I ended up becoming really good friends. Um, and we, we traveled with each other for a bit, but we both went to this ashram together with some other guys, but we really connected there. Yeah, we had an ex- that the ashram was like a called Siva and it's based off like voluntary service so you stay there for a low price but then you help out by doing like the dishes or you know putting clothes on the on the clothesline on the top of this huge building or like folding flyers and you know we did yoga there and meditation and I remembered like doing singing lessons like random workshops um, but what was really cool was in that place there was a, a guru called um, Amma and she's known as the hugging mother so she has ashrams all around the world um, and she kind of goes and visits them on occasion. But what she's known for is, you know, these hugging marathons where people who stay at the ashrams will line up for hours to get a hug with Amma. And so Jake and I thought, you know, we're here at this ashram and Amma just happens to be there. Let's go and get a hug from Amma. And so, yeah, we, we lined up. It would have been at least two or three hours and we were sitting on seats and, and gradually we we're like getting close to where Amma is. And you can kind of just picture it as her like sitting on the stage in this like high kingly chair, royal chair. And then her closest devotees are like right around her, making sure that, you know, people aren't getting too close and like, you know, guiding people slowly towards her to receive this hug. And so, yeah, we get closer to Amma. It's like you've got the seats, you know, and then there's chairs on the stage as well. And then finally, you kind of get towards where you get from the last seat and you start kneeling, like approaching her. And you kind of, the way that you hug her is you, you kneel on the ground and you kind of reach up. And so I remember um, being the next person to receive a hug. Um, but what struck me, though, was like her eye contact. So I, it was the first time where I felt like someone staring into my soul. I was like, I didn't know where I was going or where I'd come from. It was like she was looking at the real me. And so whilst I was so focused on this hug, I think the real impact of that was like, yeah, something that I couldn't describe. It was like, holy, holy shit. And, and I think um, I just started by just like touching her waist with a hug. 
and I felt totally uncomfortable. And she um, whispered, she went to my ear and whispered um, like a, a mantra. And it was like, Maju, 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 Maju. And it was this sound healing. But I was still in awe of just the eye contact of like, what the fuck just happened? But yeah, it was experiences like that, which kind of shaped. And, and Jake and I would just have all of like so many of these experiences. crazy train rides to um you know motorbike journeys to you know um, overnight bus stays um and it all led kind of to goa so whilst we were traveling in the south we then decided to we went to stayed in this place called hampi and then and then went to goa to, to celebrate new year's and it was funny because i was staying at kind of a party hostel away, away from where jake was staying so jake was staying at this place called um the lazy llama which is a funny name. It was kind of this really like chill, artistic, creative hostel right in the hub of like Party Central. But it was so, it was like spacious and there was instruments. And it was just like a lot of hippie types. Um, whereas I was staying, I'd say a few kilometers away on, an, on another beach at a more party type hostel. So what, so yeah, Jake and I would kind of, yeah, we'd go with, a, there was another guy called Murray and we would just hang out, go to the beach during the day and then just go to bars and stuff at night. Yeah, so New Year's Eve in Goa was um, probably the biggest party that I've been involved, like the craziest um, and the most mental party that I've been a part of. I remember um, just catching up with Jake and some other friends and we just get to the beach and it's like overloaded with people and you just look along the beach line it's like maybe a kilometre of beach and all the way down that kilometre is like bars and nightclubs and we just walk there and the tide is like really close up to the sand and so there's not that much actual beach um and we're just walking around it's like people just throwing fireworks up like just randomly on the beach it's like so dangerous and so chaotic it's almost like an anarchy and we went to this it's like psytrance club and it was actually pretty mental um not only in terms of the party but also because there were like no girls it was just like young indian guys and one of the reasons was actually pretty sad because a lot of these guys are like trust fund kids with rich parents and just go to Goa to party. And so they've got no boundaries with women. So one of the reasons why there weren't many women there is because these guys would just like touch girls' boobs, just like fill it out. Um, and it actually happened to me as well. So in the Psytrance Club, I just felt this dude just touching my crotch, um, this Indian guy. And it's like, there's no filters. Um, and so I, I remember just like staring, I was like, just like staring him down um, and getting pretty angry about it. And then, yeah, it was just, I don't know, it was just all a bit too much. It was very hectic. And so I think Jake left early and then I left a bit after that. And then after New Year's Eve, it got a lot more chill. Tim had met many people on his travels, people that had changed and impacted him in big and small ways. But little did he realise that the next person he'd meet would completely change his life, for better and for worse. It was like the 1st or 2nd of January, I'd planned to catch up with Jake at the Lazy Llama. And our plan was actually to go, like, I got there about lunch, and our plan was to go to this, I think it was like a rooftop bar, where we would just, like, hang and just have, you know, drinks, just during the night, like, throughout the day and during the night, just have day, day drinks and just chill and just hang. And I got to the Lazy Llama, and I remember... There was like this coffee table where people were sitting around and just like people having chats from different countries and 
someone playing guitar. And there was a spot kind of at the head of the coffee table. And to my left was this German girl. Her name was um, Lena, kind of doing her own thing. So she was like writing notes, you know, in a journal and then, you know, doing some drawings. And she was also, there was like a bowl of porridge right in the corner. And I just looked at the porridge. I was like, oh, that smells. I just kind of, you know, said it out loud to no one in particular. I was like, the porridge smells really nice. And then she kind of looked up and she was like, oh, do you want to, do you want to try? Like, do you want to try some of the porridge? And so I said, sure. And then she gave me a spoon and I tried the porridge and I tasted it. And it like, it just tasted of home. It was like, I make this porridge. I had like such a nice cinnamon flavor. There was like apples and bananas and fruits. And it was just really rich and, and like hearty and warming. And I just, I said that, I was like, oh, this tastes like home. And then we kind of connected on that. From that moment on, we kind of just like for the next six or seven hours, we were just immersed in conversation, but not like, I mean, not conversation, but presence. Yeah, my first impressions of her, like I said, was she was drawing this journal, but she was just very um, content with herself. Like all the other backpackers were having chats and talking about their crazy stories, but she was kind of just doing her own thing and was very present and had very, um, very relaxed way about her. And I think I just like was very in tune with that. I gravitated towards that energy. And it was very inspiring. So I, I felt like I wanted to draw. I wanted to write. I wanted to get creative. And so, yeah, for the next several hours, we would go in um, from like drawing and doing our own thing and then having these deep philosophical chats. From that moment on, I didn't want to admit it necessarily, but I was like quietly very, felt very connected to this human. It was like very, I, I still enjoyed have, hanging out with Jake and we had our own um, relationship but with Lena it was just so natural and so as a, yeah we were like a group of us so it was it was Jake myself Lena and there was a, a guy from Denmark called Johannes and we all kind of t- spoke about the rainbow gathering like I said before um, and there was a rainbow gathering happening in, in Hampi actually where I'd just been Sarah like a hippie um, gathering where people with different skill sets and talents would like share those and there was no money it was all about family and togetherness and and sharing skills and community and so we all made the collective decision even though I had initially planned to keep traveling north to return back to Hampi to go to the rainbow gathering because this name had kept on coming up throughout my trip and all of these people wanted to go. And so we ended up getting a bus back to Hampi, all of us, like Lena, myself, Jake, and, um, and Johannes. And then it was funny because we, we got back to Hampi. And in Hampi, it's kind of you know, split into two sections. There's, there's Hampi Town, which is known for these ancient structures. And then there's Hampi Island. And you've got to cross this like, river to get to Hampi Island. And the Rainbow Gathering was going to be on Hampi Island. And so we get there in the morning and one of the first things we hear is that the rainbow gathering has been cancelled. And so we're like, oh fuck, what do, we, what do we do now? And it got cancelled because apparently they were like squatting on someone's, on like illegal land or illegal property. And so the people at the rainbow gathering had just kind of set up camp instead on this, um, it's like a cafe with some land next to it. But that kind of like, that changed our plans. Because I'd been in Hampton beforehand, I kind of had made some friends there, some Indian friends. And so one of my friends had actually just spoken to me about, um, you know, smoking weed and, and, and getting hash in particular. And so I said to these guys, I said to Lena and Jake and, and Johannes, like, I know this guy. 
you might be able to get some hash. And it's like really pure. They get it from the north of India in, in a place called Manali. And so we go to where the guy, this Indian guy, his name's Rami, and he's at this guest house, stays at this guest, or works at this guest house called Nagila. And so we go there. They've got rooms there as well, so I end up staying there. And then I, I ask Rami, I go, hey, Rami, do you still have that, that hash that you spoke about last time? Because I think we're all interested in, in getting some. And he's like, yeah, yeah, no problem. No problem, Tim, I get you the hash. And so the next day he gets us like, just it's like a rock, like a black, this black substance. And then you kind of just chip a little bit off and you add it into just like some paper, like smoking paper. And so the four of us would just, um, over the next I think five or six days, we just had a blissful time of like great chats, conversations, and we were just smoking this hash. And it was just such a mellow high it was like it made you super creative and feel really connected to like not only people but the earth and the environment and so we would just be i remember just like making up raps and then we would do like um i think we went bouldering one day and then we'd like ride motorbikes and we just had a really wholesome time like all the all four of us but i think over time like, yeah over those four or five days we all kind of then started doing our own thing and I feel like for Jake and Johannes, their time at Hampi had come to an end. And so they started drifting off a little bit. I remember there was one night where, um, yeah, we were smoking a lot of hash and then we ended up just like staying in a hammock for free. And, and that, that night I was like, that night I was drifting more towards Lena and less towards Jake and, and Johannes. And I actually made, I knew that Lena was doing um, a course in Reiki, so Reiki healing. And so I actually made the decision myself to, I think, just reward myself. So I ended up getting like this beautiful state of the resort at this beautiful um, cottage. And I decided to do a course in Ayurvedic massage for 10 days. And so, yeah, so Jake and, Jake and Johannes left and then Lena and I were left. And, and Lena was, you know, she did a Reiki course during the day. And then I was doing my massage course and then we'd kind of meet up. But over time, the, the hash, I think, started getting to me. And I started, I remember like there were some small signs of just like paranoia, slight paranoia. So I was getting scared of, of shadows um, and I'd feel in a fear state like of shadows, but even um, like negative conversations or arguments, I would start getting like a bit scared and wanting to remove myself from the situation. Um, and it kind of just started getting, you know, worse and worse. Yeah, before then, you know, I'd, I've done acid trips and I'd been on a mushroom trip and, and everything, but I'd never had that. And so it was like, I didn't know what, it, I wasn't thinking about it. It was just like, this is what it is. I just felt scared, even to the point of like, you know, running back to my, um, the cottage and locking the door and feeling scared that, you know, Rami, the guy telling before, was I had like a gun there was going to shoot me. And that was just from like a conversation that, or a bit of an argument that we'd had, nothing too serious. But in my mind, I was like looking seven or eight steps ahead and I was thinking, fuck, what can be the ultimate outcome from this? And, and I just saw violence. Like my, my mind just went straight down and it freaked me the fuck out. And so that wasn't good. And then, I mean, but that would go into, that was mainly at night that that happened. And this was just the beginning of Tim's descent into his own personal hell and the end of his fun, free-spirited trip abroad. Tune in next time to Residence to hear the rest of Tim's story 